0: Hello lovely listeners and welcome back to Category Insight. This month we are focusing on allergy. We're going to start with hay fever because I don't know about you but I'm already back on the antihistamines for this season and we know that pharmacies are the perfect place to access over-the-counter treatments and advice for hay fever. We will also be discussing allergy and anaphylaxis and the opportunities pharmacy teams can play in intervention. Finally, stick around until the end of the podcast where Millie speaks to our extra special guest, founder of the Natasha Allergy Research Foundation. So let's get to it. First up joining me today is Amina Warner, head of clinical at Allergy UK, the leading national patient charity for people living with all types of allergy. Hi Amina, how are you?
1: Hello to you, Monica. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for having Allergy UK speak on this podcast.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do?
1: Uh, yes. Um, uh, we, uh, as you say, we are the leading uh, national charity and um, our operational name is the British Allergy Foundation. We were formed uh, by clinicians working in allergy and we support people uh By providing information, we've got a helpline um, and lots and lots of fact sheets about various uh, um, topics around allergy. Um, And and we've got uh, lots of uh, media reach. And so we've got uh, a Facebook forum. So uh, we help where we can to people and their families uh, affected by allergy.
0: That's fantastic! Thank you so much. And now we're going to focus this half of the of the pod on allergic rhinitis. So, Amina, can you tell us what is allergic rhinitis and why is it often known as hay fever?
1: Yes, uh, allergic rhinitis um, it is the the medical uh, term for uh, symptoms of runny nose and itchy nose, sneezing, and nasal blockage, and If you get those symptoms on a seasonal basis, that's what we call hay fever. But not all allergic rhinitis has just got a seasonal basis to it. Some people can have allergic rhinitis to other things apart from pollens that give their symptoms all year round. So although they might have those same type of symptoms that Uh, to, To you and I, we would call hay fever. If you were to see a doctor and get referred for an allergy assessment, they would term it allergic rhinitis until they might prove that it is a seasonal or what they would call perennial, which is all year round.
0: Thank you. And and a lot of these symptoms are now kind of quite similar to that of COVID-19. How can pharmacy teams reassure people that their symptoms indicate hay fever and not COVID?
1: Yes, that's a really interesting question and it was slightly uh, more clearer when we were uh, in the first lockdown and we first knew about um, COVID because a lot of uh, what was people was reporting as COVID, uh, we could categorise into um, a, a high temperature, uh, whereas hay fever doesn't give you a high uh, a temperature and uh, we could also say about a new persistent cough, Whereas uh, hay fever often affects people year on year. So many people know at certain times of year, their symptoms uh, are are much worse, and that they might start getting a tickle in the back of their throat, and they might cough. Uh, But usually, unless... People have got um, more asthma symptoms with their hay fever. It doesn't produce a persistent cough. So it was a bit more easier to spot some of the symptoms, whereas now many people... Um, don't report a high temperature many people are what they call asymptomatic and many people um, would say they've got a headache feeling um, uh, fatigued and um, uh, they, they just feel a bit under the weather and they might have the occasional cough um, so that becomes a bit more blurred if you like because we are we are in the hay fever season now um, and we are seeing tree pollen um And we're coming into the grass pollen season, where 90% of people with hay fever, that is their trigger. So people will want to know, is it COVID symptoms, is it not? If they are unsure, it's always wise to take a test, but usually... Uh, the covid from everything we are hearing it doesn't produce symptoms such as uh, itchy nose itchy eyes um itchy throat etc so that itch might be one of the things that people can define oh this is um maybe hay fever this is what i usually get and it starts off with itchy eyes and an itchy nose and then my nose starts to run but often hay fever catches people out because It's not a defined day when hay fever starts. It's usually um, uh, about the weather patterns, etc., as to how high the pollen counts are and when they start, etc. So, although we can say that uh, the grass pollen season usually is between the end of April and the beginning of August. Usually people will, um, you know, if they are also allergic to maybe tree pollen and they get their symptoms in March, they may might not be prepared for those hay fever symptoms. So if they are in doubt, then it's best to test.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's really helpful, I know, for teams to be able to reassure patients. And so in dealing with the symptoms of hay fever but hay fever itself, Um, there are lots of over-the-counter treatments available to manage symptoms. Could you maybe tell us um, what those are?
1: Yes, uh, you're right. There are a number of things that people on the the front line, like pharmacies, etc., can do to help people uh, um, manage hay fever. So let's start very simply with something like a nasal allergen barrier balm uh, that people can just put on the outsides of their nostrils. And when people are breathing uh, the pollen, then um, that is a way of the pollen sticking uh, to, to the outside of the nose rather than breathed up into the nostrils where they can cause uh, those symptoms of rhinorrhea, which is the runny nose, and the symptoms of nasal congestion, which is the Uh, stuffy blocked nose so that's one simple thing they can do now pollen is virtually indestructible unless it is wet and one of the other things that people can do is what we call nasal saline douching and there are products that you can get over the chemist counter um, which uh, are nasal saline douches and so this is a way of just rinsing the pollens out of the nasal area and it's very, very effective. And so that stops, again, all the pollen building up into the uh, the nasal passages. And um, it just rinses out all those pollens and people can blow their nose. Uh, and a lot of people report just those two things alone actually help them manage their hay fever. Now, there are, um, especially with things like itch, Um, because often the itch is due to uh, the um, pollens uh, falling on maybe the surface of the eye or breathed up into the nose. And then they come into contact with what we call mast cells uh, and mast cells um, degranulate and they release histamine. And histamine is very, very irritant. And so that's where antihistamines come in to take that irritation and that itch down. And they are very effective. But if you're using it for something like hay fever, it is best to use something uh, along the lines of a long-acting non-sedating, because then you only need to take that tablet once a day. And it's important that it's non-sedating, because you want to function uh, well. You want to, um, if you're at work, you want to um, be focused on your the work that uh, you're expected to produce. If you're driving, you need to be alert for driving. If you're at uh, school or college or university, then you need to be a, a, alert and aw- awake. Now, one thing uh, that we have got research evidence on is... And if you think about it, nearly every exam that uh, anyone is likely to take happens in the peak pollen season. Uh, If your symptoms aren't well controlled or if you're on um, a sedating antihistamines, then That in itself will impact on exams and exam results. And we have got research evidence that if hay fever is not well managed, that pupils can drop a grade between the mock um, uh, exams that usually happen at the beginning of the year to the exams themselves, which happen in the peak pollen season. So it is really important for uh, pupils, for parents and uh, other students, uh, say at university or wherever, need to know that. So work management of that, those symptoms is really important. So we've talked about long-acting, non-sedating antihistamines um, there, there are antihistamines that are non-sedating, non, uh, non uh, sedating, but they're short-acting histami- uh, uh, antihistamines and they're available over the chemist counter, but you just need to take them maybe on a more frequent basis because they are short-acting. Um, and you're talking about things like um, uh, acrovastin, and acrovastin is a short acting uh, uh, antihistamine, whereas uh, things like levoceterazine, um, uh, things like cetirizine, uh, things like um, loratidine, they are all um, n- uh, long acting. Antihistamines. And so you've got um, the antihistamines in tablet form, but you've also got them in sprays and eye drops, etc. So there is a combination um, spray uh, that has got antihistamine and um, a nasal steroid spray, and that uh, uh, um, may be over the chemist's counter, or if you've got um, some means of providing that, say a, a pharmacist who's a prescriber. Um, that can uh, prescribe something like that. Uh, and then you've got the nasal, um, aqueous steroid nasal sprays. And again, if you've got a nasal blockage, then it's really important that patients need to know that uh, a nasal steroid spray doesn't act overnight. It takes a little while because steroids are anti-inflammatory drugs and the nasal congestion is caused by the inflammation in the nasal passages. So it's important for them to know it's not a one-off thing like a decongestant. But what uh, the difference between the decongestion with, uh, g- decongestant that might just provide. Um, quick symptomatic relief so if you're going to say you know in the summer to a wedding or somewhere that you really need your nose not to be blocked a decongestant is a really good um, thing that people might like to recommend but it's not to be recommended on a regular basis because you can get a rebound effect uh, and people become uh, you know sort of uh, used to that uh, nasal congestion uh, congestant use and so uh, they-, they will be able to breathe a bit better but uh, when it wears off and they stop it, then it will all come back again, because you're only actually treating that symptom. You're not getting to the root cause, and the root cause is the inflammation, which is where the nasal steroid needs to be given. And research shows that majority of nasal steroids, um, very little gets absorbed into the body. So uh, often, if you're talking about children, it's much better to get go to the GP, uh, because uh, then the Gp can prescribe uh, um, a, a nasal steroid spray that very very little virtually anything gets uh, absorbed into the body um, some of the ones over the chemists counter the bioavailability and the uh, n- uh, amount of steroid that's absorbed is a bit more than um, uh, well especially the the steroid absorption is more than what you can get for what GPs can prescribe. So that's important to note as well, and especially with children. Um, and also the, uh, the shape of the proboscis on the um, uh, bottle of the nasal steroid spray If it is really long, then putting that into a child's nose is not really um, the best thing. And there are other ones that you can get with only a very, very short, small proboscis that is much better suited for children. So that's also important to note. Uh, so there uh, and of course there are things for people uh, to deal with their itchy eyes and the itchy eyes really do cause a lot of uh, problems for people so you've got uh, um, things like the chromoglycates uh, effective and you've also got um, uh, you know quite a a number of different things that people can get over the chemist counter and and uh, washes as well saline type washes uh to The eyes as well. Uh, Again, just to get rid of the pollens out of the eyes.
0: Wow, thank you so much. I really can't believe what you said that um, students can potentially drop a whole grade because of symptoms. It really shows just how important management is. And earlier you um, briefly mentioned asthma, and I just wondered if you could briefly tell us how hay fever can make asthma symptoms worse and what advice pharmacy teams can give to sufferers.
1: Yes, um, it is widely acknowledged and there is research evidence that suggests if uh, allergic rhinitis, hay fever symptoms aren't managed well, then um, the, uh, the, well, if you think about, um, let's step back a tiny bit to the nasal congestion and the blocked, stuffy nose, often people with when they've got a blocked, stuffy nose, the Um, mucus then goes down the back of the throat uh, called a post-nasal drip. And that constant dripping down the back of the throat, often people will swallow, etc. But that contains the allergen that people are constantly breathing up and trying to, you know, deal with in their body. And you've got all this uh, immunological um, work going on with the mast cells uh, degranulating, releasing their histamine. The histamine then um, has that knock-on effect, and you've got other infra- inflammatory mediators. You're. Glands, etc. So you've got that going on in the nasal area. Plus, if you've got that constant post-nasal drip, and you've got the allergens being breathed in through the respiratory system, then that can cause um, the uh, bronchioles to become hypersensitive, and that hypersensitivity can lead over time to asthma. So it's really important that the um, hay fever symptoms are actively or very proactively managed because research evidence suggests if it's not well managed, over time people can develop asthma and people do develop asthma. When I was in clinical practice, I saw that quite um, often, is people, uh, some some people had pollen-induced asthma, so they only had asthma at certain times of year. But research evidence also suggests that people can go and have um, asthma exacerbations and go to A&E um, for those um, uh, asthma attacks uh, in the height of the pollen season. So there is a phenomenon called thunderstorm asthma. So when we have very high pollen uh, counts and uh, there is a thunderstorm, the thunderstorm the um, uh, uh, sort of fractionates the pollens into smaller particles and they can get deeper into the lungs when they are breathed in and then research evidence suggests that when they look at AE admissions that in thunderstorm uh, asthma there are more A&E admiss- admissions through exacerbations of asthma um, because of that thunderstorm so it's really important to uh, for uh, to note and also help people prepare if we know thunderstorms are coming um, especially you know with um, uh, lightning etc in the peak pollen season it's really important to help people prepare for it.
0: Absolutely and <laughs> finally where can Um, pharmacy teams signpost people to for further support to kind of help them prepare
1: well, there is uh, support uh, groups like ours, uh, like Allergy UK, um, there is the British, uh, that's for patients, but if they want to enhance their knowledge of um, uh, um, allergy and allergic rhinitis, uh, that we have a national uh, clinical group called the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. It's quite a mouthful, but we shorten it to Uh, the BSACI, they produce national guidelines and there are national guidelines on uh, allergic rhinitis and how to manage it. There is something called the ARIA guidelines and that is allergic rhinitis and its impact on allergy. And with the BSACI, they have a primary care group which they welcome pharmacists as well into, and they do an annual conference. There is a conference coming up with the World Allergy Organisation and the BSACI, and that's going to be held in Edinburgh at the end of this month. Uh, and there are lots and lots of um, study days uh, that people put on that we have got a, a national um, uh, if you like, a person who's done lots of research uh, in this uh, on this subject of thunderstorm asthma in particular. His name's Swe- uh, Dr. Uh, Sweb Nasser and he's at uh, Cambridge at Addenbrooke's uh, uh, NHS Trust. So uh, we have a lot of information that we know and that's why it's really great that you've come and we are trying to share this with pharmacists because often people with hay fever symptoms that's their first port of call when they want some help on how to managing manage those really awful um, symptoms a time of year when we're all supposed to be out enjoying the lovely warm sunshine
0: Next up, we are discussing all things anaphylaxis. Joining me today is Sarah Baker, campaign manager at Anaphylaxis Campaign, the only UK-wide charity operating solely for the growing numbers of people at risk for severe allergic reaction with anaphylaxis, and Theron Govind, pharmacist and healthcare advisory lawyer. Thank you so much both for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing?
2: Great, thank you, and thank you for inviting us. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. And would you be able to tell me kind of what interested you both in working to um, better raise awareness for anaphylaxis?
2: Hi, shall I I go first? Um, So um, my background is as a a nurse and uh, more recently I've been doing COVID vaccinations. So um, I've always had an interest in anaphylaxis. It's a key role for any nurse to understand uh, allergies and how to treat anaphylaxis and more recently doing COVID vaccinations, there's been a huge amount of concern about whether the COVID vaccinations would have an impact on people with allergies. Um, And so being able to answer their questions and respond appropriately should any patient uh, go into anaphylaxis as a result is um, absolutely key. And personally, I have a number of food allergies myself, so I live every day managing allergies?
3: So I have obviously had an an interest because obviously with flu vaccinations, with COVID vaccinations, anaphylaxis and treating it is is so important. Also with colleagues who have had the experience of a patient coming into the pharmacy and suffering from anaphylaxis and having to administer adrenaline from having those conversations with colleagues about how they felt about that. Um, And also just how we can improve um, in pharmacy in dealing with anaphylaxis. And that's really where some of my interest has come from. Um, And that we can obviously provide it in an emergency from a pharmacy. And the other key point as well, really, is obviously previously um, there has been some shortages of some of the uh, devices used to treat anaphylaxis. So I have had some experience in uh, advocating for patients and the pharmacy with regards to the difficulties uh, that can bring um, and highlighting those issues in a national uh, media.
0: That's great. Thank you both so much. And so, Sarah, would you be able to kind of briefly explain what anaphylaxis is?
2: Yeah, so anaphylaxis is a serious whole-body allergic reaction. And um, in your introduction, you talked about severe allergies, but actually we're moving away from saying severe to serious to recognise that... We can have a severe headache, we can have a severe tummy upset, we can have a severe pain. But what we want to do with anaphylaxis is demonstrate that actually it is serious and you have to act um, immediately should somebody be in um, anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis occurs when somebody is exposed to something they're allergic to, uh, known as an allergen. Um, And reactions can usually begin within minutes and progress very rapidly, but can occur up to two to three hours later.
0: Thank you. And you just mentioned allergens there. What, What are allergens and what are the top food allergies in the UK currently?
2: Okay, so you can be allergic to anything, but there are... Um, some food allergens that are more common than others. So in the UK, there are 14 identified food allergens. Um, so these are eggs, fish, peanuts, soya, cereals that contain gluten, milk, tree nuts, crustaceans, which include things like crabs, crayfish, lobster, prawns, shrimps, um, mollusks, Celery, mustard, sesame, sulfur dioxide, which um, people probably know as sulfite, and lupin. But as I said, people can be allergic to a whole variety of different foods. So kiwi is becoming more common, and banana um, is quite common as well.
0: Yeah, thank you. And, and how is anaphylaxis then treated?
2: Okay, so there is one treatment for anaphylaxis and that's um, with adrenaline so adrenaline is something that we produce naturally in our bodies in a flight or fight situation but in the, in, uh, in the case of anaphylaxis you need a lot more adrenaline than your body would naturally produce so anybody who is, um, has been diagnosed with allergies which may be from a food or venom allergy they should be prescribed to adrenaline auto-injectors and shown how to use these. Um, and the adrenaline auto-injector is injected into the upper outer thigh and the pharmaceutical companies who make adrenaline auto-injectors, so there's EpiPen, Jext and Emerade, currently on the market, anybody who is prescribed any of those adrenaline auto-injectors should be shown how to use them And there are trainer pens through the pharmaceutical companies available. And the reason for being shown how to use it is that in an emergency, there's little time for training or to check that you know how to use it. But equally, each of the adrenaline auto injectors works in a different way. And so it's really important to know how the adrenaline auto injector that you've been prescribed works. All the... Adrenaline auto injectors have expiry dates, and each of the pharmaceutical companies that manufacture adrenaline auto injectors provides a an expiry alert service. So you can register your adrenaline auto injector through the pharmaceutical website on their expiry alert um, system, and um, then you get a notification a month prior to your adrenaline auto injector expiring.
0: That's great. And what advice can pharmacy teams give to sufferers regarding how to use these adrenal injectors?
3: Well, I think it's a really um, important, as we've heard there, about, about how to use them. So your local pharmacy may have Trainer devices that they can show you how to use, and certainly I would make sure that if you're newly prescribed one, for example, that you you get the information from your healthcare professional there about your specific pen, because as we've heard, they have slightly different methods perhaps of of injecting. Um, And the really important thing as well is to make sure that um, we store them in the right place. So in a cool dark place at room temperature we want to keep them out of direct sunlight um, and out of the way of extreme temperatures so you wouldn't want to be leaving it in your fridge you know in a fridge or in a glove box if you were in a car for example um, and you were going out for a walk you want it to be with you um, because if you're going to need that pen and um, you need your friends and family who are around you as well to know how to administer that device. So I think there's some important educational training that pharmacists and pharmacy teams can do for patients in the pharmacy, which can then help you perhaps as an individual to support your family and friends um, to, so that they know how to use those um, those pens. Um, so I think there's just so much advice as well, available at your local pharmacy in terms of just managing um, allergy as well and anaphylaxis so I think it's really important that we really make sure as teams that we're engaging properly with the uh, resources that are, are available as well.
2: Can, can I add into that as well because I think um, what Theron said is really helpful um, that sometimes patients don't realise how much information and expertise there is in their local pharmacy and um, so sometimes patients say they couldn't get an appointment with their GP, but to be able to walk into their local pharmacy and get this advice is um, is really helpful. Um, the Anaphylaxis Campaign have an Allergy Wise, which is an online um, free training program for pharmacists, which has been endorsed by the Royal Ph- Pharmaceutical Society. So if they want to do an update on allergy and anaphylaxis, that's available to them as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and the great thing about pharmacy teams is they can give back people that confidence they can have, you know, when going out to eat, for example, and provide advice and be able to perhaps take away some of that worry that sufferers might endure. And, and just kind of on that, I'm sure for all sufferers, things like eating out and buying food can be a cause of um, anxiety and stress so what advice can pharmacy teams give to people to help them feel prepared and be able to enjoy those experiences of eating out
3: well i i really sympathize because obviously we all enjoy socializing and then sometimes socializing can involve um, eating out so i think the really important thing is to have a conversation with your pharmacy team when you um, when you're counselled on these items um and when you're going to restaurants i think you want to have the confidence in that in the place where you're going so i think it's really important not to be scared of asking for the menu asking you may ask if you can go and have a look where where the food is being prepared they may may be able to offer you that option i think you want to have the confidence um, that you are going to to number one be able to eat and not have those triggers there but number two you also want the confidence that if something does happen that you've got people around you who can help you deal with it and um and that that's really the I think the second point is a key part as well for maybe you know if you have your mum or your dad or you've got children that they potentially know how to administer that that pen to you and it may be that you can try and get some training from your pharmacy teams
2: on that. I think it's also important to um, ensure you always carry your adrenaline auto-injector with you. Um, There have been um, a number of serious incidents and sadly a number of deaths where people have eaten out, um, have gone into anaphylaxis but haven't had their adrenaline auto-injectors with them. Um, and sometimes you go out, particularly younger people, they may be out with friends and not realise that they're actually going to be going out to eat. They just thought they were meeting for a gathering, for other social events. So um, we would always really stress that it doesn't matter where you go, what you think you might be doing, always have your adrenaline auto-injectors with you just in case.
0: Yeah. And finally, where can pharmacy teams signpost people to for further support?
3: Well, obviously, we've heard about the anaphylaxis campaign and there's some amazing um, training um, available on the website as well. Um I think it's really important that people have some maybe some, some connections that they can talk to about this, because it can feel quite lonely if you're having to, especially, you know, if you're a young person having to carry around a, a pen the time and probably feeling you know I can't eat out and feeling quite restricted so it may be that there um, is some counselling that you can access as well um, and some support groups with this so I think there's some probably as well some local groups in your area which you could connect with your pharmacy team um, regarding to make sure that you don't feel so isolated regarding this because I think You know, something sometimes as basic as food or um, it can feel quite
2: isolating. Um, And also um, the FSA have a huge range of uh, resources um, for both the public and for uh, corporate organisations. So um, they have the FSA have a speak up for allergies campaign, which is particularly aimed at younger people and to encourage them to have the confidence to speak up about their allergies. Young people tend not to want to be different to their peers, and this campaign is really focusing to support them in, in speaking up about their allergies. And there's also the Easy to Ask campaign, which is a campaign that was developed between the FSA, the Food Standards Agency, the Anaphylaxis Campaign, and Allergy UK, which again provides um, key pointers and um, little tips on how to have the confidence to speak up about your allergies. So they're really useful resources that um, that both the public, um, young people and older people may want to use.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you so much to the both of you. Um, is there anything else that you'd kind of like to add while we're here?
2: No I mean I would obviously I would encourage people to look at the anaphylaxis campaign website Um, there's a whole range of resources there And we have a specific section on living with anaphylaxis and a guide to eating out so and that also provides the links to the FSA resources as well so um, really encourage people to look at our website.
3: I think I would just add obviously you know anaphylaxis is a medical emergency and we need to make sure that everyone around us is is aware so just those probably five b- basic tips if people uh, leave this uh, podcast and and remember, you know, make sure you've got that device and use it, call 999 if you can remove any triggers, but it might not be possible, um, lying someone down and raising their legs and that you might need to give another injection. But I think it's really about this is an emergency and um, and as I say, anything you can do to prepare uh, yourself and those around you for having to deal with this is is going to be life saving potentially
4: To finish up the podcast today, I'm chatting with Tanya ednan Laparouse OBE. Tanya is the founder of the Natasha Allergy Research Foundation, a non-profit organisation that aims to raise public awareness of allergies, many of which are, are or can be life-threatening. The charity is behind N- Natasha's Law, which came into effect on the 1st of October 2021 and requires all food outlets to provide full ingredient lists with clear allergen labelling on pre-packed for direct sale food. Hi, Tanya. How are you?
5: Hi, I'm fine. Nice to meet you, really. Nice
4: to meet you too. Um, Just to get started, would you mind telling me a little bit about you and why you started the foundation?
5: Yes, so um, I I never pictured myself really in my life as it was um, running a charity or working for a charity as we are, um, my husband and I. But um, our daughter, Natasha, she had multiple food allergies and she was born in December um, 2000. And we very much felt we were very much on our own. We didn't really know other people who had children with allergies. We didn't actually know anyone who had food allergies like she did. And um, we did the best we could. To be honest, there was very little support for us at that time. But we, we, you know, we we navigated, we knew what we had to do and and, and we did what we had to do. But unfortunately, in 2016, um, Natasha died from eating a baguette that she purchased from um, a well-known chain, a sandwich chain. And it had sesame seeds um, that weren't visible to the eye, but had been baked into the dough of the bread. And they weren't included on the label. There was a partial food label, but they hadn't included this particular allergen, which she was really allergic to. And she passed away that day. Um, And then two years on from that, um, she had an inquest. And it was incredible to us that there was so much interest in her inquest. Um, We knew of an an allergy death inquest just the week before Natasha's, uh, a young woman had died in a restaurant chain from an anaphylactic reaction, which is a serious allergic reaction. And yet it didn't even make the newspapers or or local papers even. And yet somehow um, Natasha's did. and, And we felt a real responsibility after that, especially once we found out that there was a legal loophole in the food law that was being misused by big businesses that allowed them not to put full ingredient labelling on foods that they prepared on their premises and then packaged. And so we started campaigning for Natasha's Law to get that changed. And a year later, well, less than a year later, we launched the Natasha Energy Research Foundation
4: Thank you for sharing that. It's such a a, a tragic way, I guess, for the organisation to start. Um, But it's amazing that you're doing such incredible things and you've taken that and and turned it around. Um, Could you elaborate a little bit more on Natasha's Law and how that came about?
5: Yes, sure. So with Natasha's Law... um... The food labelling laws just weren't being used as they should have been. And and what was really confusing for her is she picked up a sandwich. She was at Heathrow Airport and she looked at the ingredients and it was safe. And she showed her best friend and she showed her dad who she was with. And they looked at it as well. They said, "Yep, Tash, this is great. You can have this. And she ate it pretty quickly. And um, it was really the reassurance of that label that it gave her, that it was safe. And for us, we just couldn't understand how big businesses could make, you know, hundred well, millions of these sandwiches. And yet they didn't have responsibility to put proper ingredient labelling on. They could put anything on they liked. They could say, you know, it, they could just choose, pick and choose what they wanted to say. And so the coroner at Natasha's inquest was very, very clear and really was was very specific in that this law was being misused. It was very wrong. Had sesame seeds been on the label, Natasha would be alive today. And so the campaign for Natasha's law started. Um, My husband and I, we um, had meetings with the Food Standards Agency, with Michael Gove, who was the then Environment Secretary, And we talked to press and we put articles out and we just banged and banged and banged. And what was really interesting, what we hadn't realised, living in our bubble of, um, you know, allergies with Natasha, we had no idea that the numbers of people who were diagnosed with food allergies had, well, in the numbers that they were, had increased so much in the last couple of decades. Um, You know, two to three million people, with diagnosed food allergies in the country now at least one allergic child food allergic child in every single class across every school in the country um, there's been and, and it's not just in this country this is happening in in you know all western um societies um, and so It became a much bigger issue than we'd ever anticipated. And that's why Natasha's Law, which is full ingredient labelling on something called PPDS, which means it's been made and packed and then sold on the same premises. That was very, very important. Um, The Food Standards Agency put out a public consultation about Natasha's Law. Should it be allergens only that's required on the label or full ingredients? And that went out to the public and they had an overwhelming response. The public, allergic and non-allergic, wanted full ingredients. They wanted transparency in the food that they were putting into their bodies.
4: Yeah, that's so important, isn't it?
5: Yes, that's right. And sorry, you were saying um, the journey to Natasha's Law. So in 2019, Natasha's Law was passed through Parliament and then food businesses were given two years to board with 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 the law and it came into full force across all parts of the uk um so in england in wales in scotland and northern ireland and it came into full force last october october 2021 that's
4: amazing and and now this has been a- achieved have you seen um the effects of it already um what's the feedback been like
5: well there was pushback from the food industry um, because it was a big change, and any change, I think, in any industry is difficult. But the issue here is is an any business has to respond to what its consumers need, and and the fact that so many people now have food allergies, it it is a huge error of misjudgment if a food business isn't actually taking their allergic consumers seriously. And um, so some took it on board very quickly, others took a bit longer to do, Um, but now we're hearing, we speak to businesses a lot, and we're hearing from many of them saying, it's brilliant, they're so glad that they've done it because it's giving them so much extra data, extra information, their processes are clearer. It's it's actually been very positive for their businesses. we we had no idea that Natasha's law would be so far reaching. You know, it was the law was originally supposed to be for small sandwich shops who make and then pre pack, um, you know, sandwiches or salads or whatever for the public, um, because then um, a consumer can go in, a customer can go in and say, "Well, can you tell me what's in that sandwich?" You can have that one to one conversation with them. But um, really, that this is this is about um, businesses being transparent and knowing who their suppliers are and being able to um, pass that information on to their customers. It's not 100%. And I know that we hear from so many people, we hear the brilliant story saying, I could never, ever eat out if I was ever, um, you know, taking a day off, taking a day out with some friends. And I could never go into a sandwich shop and just trust what's um what I'm told because I was too scared they might make a mistake but yet when I know it's on a label and I can see it really clearly and they've I speak to them and they've got proper processes in place I can now actually join in food with other people whereas before I was excluded so we hear a lot about that we hear that happening in schools and universities and hospitals Um, all sorts of places around the country and then we also get letters from people and emails saying well I went somewhere and and they're not adhering to Natasha's law and um, what we advise them to do is to speak to them and um, and if they really don't get anywhere with that is actually to um, report them to the food standards agency um, or to the local um, authority who can then investigate it further
4: yeah, that's fantastic, and it introduces some normality for them, I guess, um, and just that security and knowing um, whatever the, whatever you eat isn't going to harm you. Um, our listeners are predominantly pharmacy teams. How do you think they can help um, raise awareness for food allergies?
5: Yes, I was I was thinking about this, and um, so we we have amazing engagement on social media um, since Natasha's inquest. It, it felt like. Before that, I think people just didn't really have a voice because allergies weren't really understood. Um, I think people in society just didn't really understand allergy. They still thought of hay fever as the main allergy. And, and if someone said they had a food allergy, it was almost like, well, you probably just don't like that food or you get a little rash and that's all it is. But that that seems to have changed within you know, public perception. And so really thinking about how pharmacists can help here because it is really about raising awareness as well um and what they do um we know from many people that you know their gps often are pretty busy you know we've had especially in the last few years with covid and everything that's happened and you know just everything's changed hasn't it the whole landscape and people getting appointments can be quite difficult and and I know that uh, people and families with food allergies, it's pretty fraught for them just to get allergy appointments and clinic appointments, et cetera. And we do hear from people saying how amazing their pharmacy and their pharmacist has been. And actually, my GP didn't tell me this, but my pharmacist did. And um, so I would actually say, really, for pharmacists to really take this seriously. If they don't know that allergies, are hugely on the increase, I'd be surprised, because I'm sure that prescriptions for allergy medications and injector pens must be quite high, um, certainly higher than they were, you know, 10 years ago. Um, But really being able to give information, really rock solid information to customers coming in. And, you know, there's there's information that people don't know about, we posted about um, a story recently. um, And the public had no idea that if Somebody is out and maybe in a restaurant and they've had a reaction and they're really scared and they've either started having anaphylactic um, symptoms or they're worried it could become more serious, that um, they are able to go to a pharmacist. And actually, they can actually give them an injector pen, an adrenaline injector pen, um, before, you know, while while um, emergency services are called. Because people don't know things like that. And there's just so much information, I think, um, having, having that one-to-one ability to speak to customers directly at the point where they're getting their medication is a, a brilliant opportunity just to empower them with some information that they can impart that will actually help them.
0: That's it for today, folks. Please check out our show notes to find useful links, including a link to Allergy UK's masterclass on anaphylaxis for pharmacists on the 26th of May. I hope our guests have given you something to think about when customers and patients head to your pharmacy in need of support. Not all interventions made in the pharmacy may be life-saving, but they most certainly can be life-changing. Until next month, I'm Monica West and this is Category Insight.